Hello, my name is Paul Dooley. And once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, I played a Nobrantane for several episodes in Deep Space Nine. And right now you're listening to Trek Untold. Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week on the show, I get to cross off another personal goal of mine from back when I first started this podcast. I've talked about a certain list I had when I conceived this show, and that was my dream list of names to speak with. It wasn't just like big names, but also a lot more of the obscure character actors. And so far, I've crossed off a lot of names from that list, but there's still many to be found. Today, I can scratch one more line from that list because I had the chance to speak with the legendary Mr. Paul Dooley. If you're a DS9 fan, and who isn't, you will know Paul from his four episodes there as a Nobrantane. He was dressed in Cardassian makeup and was the leader of the Obsidian Order, first in the Season 2 episode The Wire, followed by Improbable Cause and the Dias cast in Season 3, and finally with the conclusion to his character's story in Season 5's episode In Purgatory Shadow. Outside of his work in Star Trek, Paul Dooley's career spans decades with some amazing work that I'm sure you've seen him in. And that includes things like Bewitched, Death Wish, the Popeye movie, yes, that Popeye movie, and yes, we're going to talk about it, Strange Brew, Sixteen Candles, Breaking Away, Mother of the Bride, My So-Called Life, Waiting for Guffman, A Mighty Wind, The Practice, Scrubs, and a bunch of other shows and movies where he's played the role of the father. In fact, he's played that part so many times in his illustrious career that that's the name of his new autobiography, Movie Dad. And it goes into all the details of his life and career, including some shocking revelations that I'm not allowed to reveal in this episode and some that weren't even allowed to discuss. Paul wanted some moments of his life to be a surprise to the readers, and having read the book, I can promise you, you will definitely be surprised, as well as informed and very much entertained hearing about his life. Now, as for that Movie Dad book, the one downside is that Paul only discusses Star Trek for half a page. But the good news is, this episode of Trek Untold is the perfect companion to Movie Dad for the Trekkies out there, because we fill in all of those gaps in the Deep Space Nine story and give you the full details about his time on that set. At 94 years old, Paul has lived quite a life, to put it mildly, and I am very honored to present my time with him today. It's a real special moment for me, and one that I hope Paul enjoyed just a fraction as much as I did. But more importantly, I hope you enjoy it, and I'm pretty sure you will. So, pour yourself a glass of Canar. It's story time with Paul Dooley. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you 
coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com at Trek Untold and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And I am extremely excited today to announce our guest who's staring across the screen for me right now. He is a living legend. He has been in so many things. And uh, I, I'm already running out of words because I'm I'm verklempt, Paul. Uh, we're joined today by Mr. Paul Dooley. Paul, how are you today? Fine. How are you? I'm great. Where are you calling from? Uh, I'm from New York. New York, yeah. I'm in uh, Burbank, California. Very nice. You've got the good weather. I'm freezing my butt off. <laughs> but yeah, I, I got to tell you, Paul, uh, you know, I started this podcast about two years ago and I made this initial list of folks I wanted to have on. And your name was in that initial list. So it's taken me two years to get you. And I'm really thrilled to have you here. So uh, already, before we even get started, just thank you for being here today. It's real wonderful to even see you and get to spend this time with you. Thank you. So, you know, we have a lot to talk about here, but I want to kick things off uh, a little different from how I normally kick things off because we're also here today to discuss your new book, your memoirs, uh, which yeah. is titled Movie Dad. So, uh, you know, we're going to talk about some of these roles today, but uh, I'm just curious, how many dads have you actually played through your career? I've played uh, about 25 to actors and actresses. Wow. <laughs> mostly, mostly actresses. That is a lot of movie dads. Uh, and I feel like I, I don't know if I've seen all of those, but that's a lot. That's a big number. I mean, how did you end up getting the, this sort of typecast and become the official movie dad of Hollywood? It probably came from the movie 16 Candles, hmm. which uh, <clears throat> in which I had a scene with Molly Ringwald. And what had to happen was that I apologized for the family had forgotten her birthday because her sister was getting married and it was a confusion. So it's a nice scene where he seems to be so empathetic and warm and uh, wonderful and understanding that it kind of made a big impression on uh, particularly young women, probably from, you know, 14 to 25 or 30, because I constantly get people on the street coming up to me and, said, I wish you were my dad. <laughs> because in real life, all dads aren't totally understanding. They might even be a little standoffish. Anyway, so I guess because of that movie, which was also pretty successful, when a name came up, let's look for a guy to be the father. We'll get that guy. You know, he's already done it. Then one thing leads to another. And I had Julia Roberts as a daughter and Tony Collette and Mia Farrow and and endless names uh, that uh, that came along and uh, I didn't mind being typecast because but being typecast means you don't get the opportunity to play a lot of different kind of characters 
But on the other hand, you're in demand or you're well known for that. And so it keeps you working. And no, what actor would not want that? Very true. But there's a lot of typecasting. If you look a little bit like a detective, you'll be playing detectives all your life. Yeah. Or if you look a little bit dishonest, you'll be the bad guy. You know, or you'll be if you're kind of goofy looking, you'll be the sidekick. But you'll really be Hollywood likes typecasting. Yeah, I feel like it's it's amazing to get, you know, Oscars and Golden Globes and BAFTAs, but I feel like to have someone walk up to you on the street and say, I wish you were my dad, that's that feels like a pretty amazing compliment to get. Yeah, and uh, half of the mail I get are from young women who will either send me a picture they have or ask me to send a picture signed uh, at, from that uh, 16 Candles scene. Oh, wow. The cover of my book is uh, me and Molly with her in a sofa and me talking to her. Yeah, it's a very, very iconic scene. And we're going to talk about Movie Dad throughout this interview here. But I just want to make sure folks know right off the bat that you guys got to check out the book. I just read it before we did this chat today. Uh, it's been it was really wonderful just reading about all your stories and your amazing life, because just for folks who don't know, I mean, you are 94. That is a life that has been lived, sir. Uh, and you've got some pretty amazing stories in there. We'll, we'll get to a few of them today. Yeah, I'm lucky to be in good health. Yeah, and I'm lucky, too, because that's how I get to talk to you today. So, yeah, uh, but. Let me, let me toss you my question. I usually throw my guests first, and that's, uh, Paul, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Did you ever watch it in the 60s when it first aired? Well, I, I watched, I wasn't actually a, you know, a science fiction fan until I saw Star Wars and the various uh, iterations of Star Wars. But uh, because of my own career, I was kind of busy a lot of the time doing my own thing. I didn't watch a uh, Star Trek before I was hired to be on it. Then, of course, I got interested and I started watching it, keeping up with it, because then I felt a part of the family. Mm-hmm. I only did four episodes, but Trekkies are so dedicated to people who have been in Star Trek that that's enough for them to chase me down to get an autograph. And if I saw you in the street, I would absolutely be doing that. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't mind getting some background information right now, too, from you, which, again, this stuff's in the book in great detail. But just to give folks a teaser out there, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, who your parents were and what they did and what little Paul wanted to be when he grew up? Well, the first thing was <clears throat> to be an artist because I used to draw a lot. Then in high school, it drifted over into cartooning. And I was a cartoonist on the school paper and that kind of thing. But what interested me in show business, not that I wanted to be in show business, was I listened to the radio beginning at about 12. And I fell in love with the comedians on the radio. A couple were uh, Red Skelton, Jimmy Durante, uh, Jack Benny. I didn't think I want to be a comedian or I could even be a comedian. I just fell in love with the idea of jokes. My whole life I've been uh, kept a tremendous vocabulary or a library in my head of all the jokes that I liked. So I have thousands of jokes in my head just because that's a quirk of what I'm like. And I'm still very, very interested in comedians and comedy films and comedy TV shows and all that. And uh, I didn't know I would ever be an actor, but I was a, maven, if you will, for for humor. And uh, it was great fun for me. Now, how about uh, where you grew up and, and who your parents were? Well, we lived on the outskirts of a town. It wasn't exactly farmland, but it was about a halfway farm. 
the houses were, you know, what you'd call two blocks away from each other. But it wasn't like being in a real farm country with huge gardens. My father actually built our house from scratch himself. Took him two years to do it, but he did it all himself. I don't know how he did it. I've never been able to figure out how he could be so good at that. He left the school in the third grade. He had terrible eyesight. I'm trying to think, how can you put a cabinet up when you can't measure an inch and a quarter or three quarters of an inch? And look, these big eyeglasses that made enlarged his eyes, you know, very thick glasses. How could he measure things right down to the eighth of an inch? I never understood it. He had no real book learning, but he he taught himself. And I wasn't impressed by it when it happened because I thought everybody, every father built his own house. What did I know? (laughs) Only years later, talking to my analyst about it, by the way, whose name was Kaplowitz. Possibly related. (laughs) (laughs) And I would, Dan Kaplowitz, I, I was with him on and off for about 20 years. I'd go away to make a movie or do a job and come back to New York and pick up again. So it was very helpful to me. Well, on behalf of all capitalists everywhere, we thank you for your patronage. <laughs> but he made me understand that my father, without any what they call book learning, was probably damned intelligent mm. because how could he do all that when he didn't even have a he was never an apprentice to a trade. He just picked it up on his own. And when he ran out of money, he would stop until he got enough money to buy some more lumber or some whatever it was, paint. But he dug a foundation, he put in a cellar all by himself, no help. I wasn't impressed by it then, but the more I learned about what it took, the more admiring I was of how smart he was about that. But it was very bucolic. It was uh, rolling hills near our house and a few houses, you know, maybe half a mile away. And on every side would be some kind of a garden like cornfield or something like that. And we had a a garden four times the size of our house. And uh, I lived, we lived out of the garden. And in the fall, some of those uh, vegetables were canned and kept for winter. We always had leftover potatoes in a bin, a wooden bin in the basement, and they were cold. So we kind of lived out of the garden, not only in the summer, but also to some extent in the winter. And we were vegetarians until I was 17 and joined the Navy. Huh. So that's one of the reasons why I probably have longevity. Uh, so what was the moment that made you decide that acting was going to be it for you? What, what was that epiphany that made you realize I'm going to be an actor now and this is my profession for the rest of my life? I went to the Navy and came out and a friend from high school was a year ahead of me and it was a lot more ambitious. If I thought I wanted to be an actor or even a cartoonist, I didn't have very much belief that I could make it because we were such a small town. Hmm. Where am I going to do that? How can I get started? Where do I move? But he was a kind of a mentor, which I didn't know the word for. But he said, what are you doing now that you're out of the services? I'm working in a factory. Why don't you come to college? I'm up here to State University. I said, well, isn't that cost a lot of money? He says, no, that, don't be stupid. You're a veteran. You'll get uh, 
two issues will be taken care of, and you'll also receive a, a monthly payment to live on. So even though I hadn't been planning on going to college or anything, nobody in my family ever finished high school, including my parents. So I said, okay, I'll give it a try. And he said, I'm studying acting and art. And uh, he had a great voice and he was doing, a, had a job at the local college, uh, the radio station at the college town. So here's a little bit of my role model because he was working on the stage in college already. And just by being there and I decided to major in art and minor in, and uh, a major in theater and minor in art. But over time, uh, the theater took over and I got the bug and worked in a lot of plays. Then you begin to get the idea that when you graduate, you go to New York. That was the Mecca. That was the kind of place in those days, most actors went to New York and not California. California would be the next step. So you don't break into the movies quite that easily, but you can be in some church basement doing a play in New York or uh, off, off Broadway, even before you get as uh, busy as being a Broadway actor. So there's a lot going on in New York. And it took me nine years of not making very much money, about $3,000 a year I lived on. Then I did a commercial. You probably remember from my book. I did a commercial. They loved the commercial. They made me a spokesman and gave me a guarantee of $40,000 for the year. So I went from $3,000 a year to $40,000 guaranteed. And that kind of changed my whole life. I, I veered into being a commercial actor because I was so successful at it. And I didn't try very hard to be stage actor or, or get into films. First of all, most of the films are in California. I was very happy. I was successful. I was pretty well known in the business with the advertising agencies. I was a sort of a, a, a wasp type white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And uh, all the parts, all the kind of commercials I would get would be just that kind of a guy, the guy next door. I could sell the product or buy the product or be the neighbor, best friend, whatever. So there are lots of parts for my type. And uh, for about 15 years, I did, the, uh, I would suppose to be, about 300 on-camera commercials in 15 years, national commercials, which is amazing. Yeah. But I was a type, just like I became a type for a father later, just an average guy next door. And uh, then I got into the business of, uh, I joined Second City and learned to improvise. Mm. And I had uh, th uh, two partners, and we began to do so many radio commercials, humorous commercials that we just actually became a team and we actually became famous for it. We would do two or three radio recordings a, a week or rather a day. We might do 10 or 15 a week. Always with some sort of joke at the end or some sort of humorous feeling about it. At first we just did it, what they wrote. Then we asked them if we could just do the comedy that we would write. So then we became actors, writers. and. Uh, Believe it or not, 
an interviewer asked me how many commercials I'd made. And I happened to have some books. Uh, there used to be a book called Week at a Glance. And I had one of those every week. And I had it in my garage in a box. And I had all my auditions in there. Wow. And when I got the job, I put an X or a check mark next to that product. I found I had done about 500 radio commercials in 15 years. So that I was so successful in that part of the business that I didn't think about going to California. I thought, what if they don't know me out there? Then what am I going to do then? Because every ad agency, every casting director in New York knew me. So very often I would get jobs with no audition, just direct bookings. Well, that's very attractive and very gratifying. So I did that for quite a long time, 15 years, as I say. Yeah. As soon as I started making films with Robert Altman, which is a whole change in my life, I stopped doing commercials and pretty much became a film actor because I did uh, four or five movies in a row with Robert Altman. Yeah. I was 49 before I made my first movie. Wow. <laughs> you know, people these days, it's like everybody's thinking, you know, I'm 20 something or I'm 30 something and I'm not doing anything with my life. But meanwhile, you know, 49 to get an Altman movie. And that's a life yeah. changer. So, you know, it can happen at any point in anybody's life, basically. That's kind of the. Well, it was here. one of those lucky breaks. If I'd never met him, I'm not sure where I'd be. Maybe I'd be doing commercials for old men. <laughs> one of my podcast inspirations is someone who you've known for a very long time. That's Alan Alda. And, uh, you know, sure. one of the reasons I started this podcast was because I was a big fan of Clear and Vivid. And that kind of helped me figure out my direction of what I wanted to do with this show. Uh, and yeah. I loved hearing you two talk on a recent episode of the show. And, uh, you know, this kind of connects to what you just talked about with your improv, because I love this part of the podcast you did with him, where you're talking about learning improv and working with Viola Spolin and some of the different things That's you right. guys would work on. Uh, and like like the one story you mentioned, uh, you can help me figure out what, if I'm saying this right, but it was like doing a scene as animals in a zoo, but then doing it again with those characteristics now as human beings. And yeah. it just sounds like That's a lot of these things you learned were just like so emotionally and physically freeing. Uh, and so yeah. I'd really like to learn a little bit more about this world and uh, some of the things that you learned with Viola Spolin and while you were learning to do improv. Well, actually, I never met Viola, uh, but I know her son, Paul Sills, who really was more responsible for. Uh, she was more of a teacher uh, in situations in. Uh, first in Chicago, where she was teaching children to open up instead of boys playing baseball, some boys wanted to be in show business. Hmm. So she taught improvisation in Chicago. Paul sort of took it into the mainstream with the Compass Theater in Chicago, then eventually became Second City. But I I learned all the exercises that from Viola's book. Probably every uh, college in the country has her book if they're talking about improvisation. And uh, she was the queen of that, you know. She began learning games. She was Russian. And before television, before who knows if it was radio or not, but way back when she was a kid, she lived in Chicago with a Russian family. And they played games in the living room, which some of which gave birth to uh, improvisational games because they were improvisational. A game we played all the time in Second City was one actor leaves the room the group decides who he is, famous or not. When he comes back, his job is to guess who he is. And what we do is we treat him as if he were that person. 
So it has a real history. And of course, Stanislavski taught improvisation mm. as an aid to an actor. For example, he would talk about before you make your entrance in a play like Chekhov's play, I want you to know what you were doing before that, who you were, what you were thinking, what you were feeling. That's how Stanislavski kind of used improvisation mm. as a help to the actor. But uh, it evolved uh, in uh, America with the Compass Theater in Chicago and then Second City. And now there are improvisations at every college probably in the country. Second City is well over 50 years old and still still doing, still going strong in, in Chicago. Now, you know, Paul, when I do my research, I like to dig as far deep as I can into someone's resume. And one of my biggest things is to see how far back I can go and see if I can find the earliest thing for them. Uh, and for you, I was able to actually find your episode of Bewitched. And that was from 1966. It was called Oedipus Hex. And uh, I would love to know if you have any memories from working on that set. Because I feel like that's kind of a big break for you to have that early on in TV for yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I lived in New York, but a couple times people sent for me to come out here to do a part. And while I was out here, then I'd stay a little longer and pick up other parts. I think I came out for Get Smart to do an episode. Yeah. I happen to know one of the writers from New York. The agent out here, I was with William Morris, and they're on both coasts. He said, stay here two or three weeks, see what happens. So then I did Bewitched and a few other things. But uh, those were the, about the earliest uh, sitcoms, TV shows I did. But I did do some television in New York. There was a well-known show called The Defenders with uh, E.J. Marshall and Robert Reed, a uh, father and son uh, Lawyers, I think it was. Hmm. And I did some of that kind of work. Or doing small parts on Armstrong Theater, Robert Montgomery Presents, Hallmark. Yeah, a little bit here and there. I'm curious if you have any memories uh, of working with Elizabeth Montgomery or Dick York or Agnes Moorhead. Just, you know, any of your time on set, if you recall any of that. Well, it would be nice if I had those stories, but... <laughs> Often it just happens that you do your part, they do their part. At five o'clock, you go home yeah. <laughs> and you don't become best friends. As a professional, just come and do your work. They're very nice people. And over time, you do get to know some of them and work with them uh, more than once. But a lot of times, it's a little bit like a factory. You have uh, five lines, 10 lines, 15 lines. You go, you do your job in one day or two or three. But everybody doesn't become everybody's best friend. Right. And unless something unusual happened, which is like uh, memorable, it's just another day at work. Right. That's fair enough. I did become friendly while working with uh, Burt Reynolds because he is so uh, social. I've heard that. He yeah. always liked to make friends with people he worked with. He liked to laugh. He would rather break up in a scene than to finish it properly. I've heard so a lot I, of stories about him, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people worked with him. He expected them to try to make him laugh. <laughs> he didn't care. Maybe he went over budget. Why did he care? For five years, five years, he was the biggest movie star. I wait, I made one movie with him called Paternity. I used to go to dinner with him after when that's over. Once we knew each other occasionally, we'd uh, get together a couple, a few times. His girlfriend was Sally Fields. and. Uh, I went to dinner with them several times. So he was kind of a friendly guy. Now, I can tell you I've never heard anyone say a bad word about Burt Reynolds on this podcast. So I'm glad to no. hear it was great for you also. Yeah. 
Now, you know, one of the things we talk about on this show that isn't Star Trek, but is a regular thing of discussion here, uh, is I'm a big fan of the Golden Girls. And yeah. you did two episodes of that series. First was Love Rose. Um, but I, I kind of want to ask you a little bit more about the second episode that you did, which was basically the backdoor pilot for Empty Nests. Uh, and which, where you got to work with Rita Moreno, another main stage uh, person here in New York City, uh, big theater person, uh, you know, and her name also also comes up a lot in this show, too. But uh, I'd love to hear if you have any memories of working with Rita and and doing that pilot with the, with all the ladies from the Golden Girls. Uh, I can't remember if it was before or after Electric Company. That would have been after, I believe. Yeah, after. So I knew Rita for a whole year on the Electric Company, which I created and was the head writer for. So I had a lot of experience with her. Not that I was in the show very much, although I did voices for it frequently. But uh, I would be on the set sometimes watching scenes. And I had my office in the, the west side of New York and the, the studios on the east side. But I had a monitor on my desk where I could watch rehearsals and watch the shooting so that if I never visited the set, I could see what was going on. And she did great on that show. She did so many wonderful things. The idea of the show was, isn't to reach normal kids because normal white kids are going to learn how to read. There's no question. Uh, but they were trying to appeal to inner, inner city kids. Uh, Hispanic kids would be would know who Rita Moreno was. She's very famous. She yep. has four awards. He got yep. everything. And uh, Cosby, of course, would be known to the black community. And we were looking for inner city kids who may, for one reason or another, got don't go to school frequently. They may, they may see teachers as authority figures they don't like. There are many reasons for it. Who knows if uh, the parents sent them to school every day. Maybe they're out on the street running around. But uh, they were trying to reach them. But I took it as a great compliment to use to use comedy to help, to really do a very interesting assignment. I said to a friend, uh, I got this job on the uh, children's television workshop teaching reading to kids. And uh, after all these years using my comedy skills just to make stupid commercials, I now think I'm doing something for good instead of evil, helping kids learn to read. I mean, so it's I a pretty groundbreaking a, thing that you did with that series. Yeah. I took it as a challenge to see what I could do, not just humor-wise or character-wise, but uh, techniques of teaching them so they didn't look as if they'd been listening to teachers, hmm. but the characters would just be interacting. With them. It didn't, we, we didn't want to do it at them, but for them. Yeah, and that rapport that you have at Rita definitely came through, I guess, from the electric company over onto the Golden Girls as well when you work with her there. That was, a, you're right, a backdoor pilot. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that, that you guys didn't get picked up for it. I mean, do you remember what, what happened to the episode and I guess the whole story of why you guys didn't return to that show and why it was basically just recast and redone? Well, uh, Susan, I forget her last name, but it's a very famous woman who wrote, who wrote uh, a series called Soap. They made the pilot with me and Rita. And I was on the shelf, uh, I guess, a network or maybe all the networks rejected it. They weren't, they weren't interested. But it was on the shelf for a year. Then they decided to try again. And they used their friend from the sitcom Soap, uh, Richard Mulligan, I think it was, yep. 
anyway, they did it again, and they used another a friend of theirs that they uh, they had a better relationship with, I guess. It didn't matter to me. I'd moved on to several other jobs by then. I kind of am glad I didn't ever do something that lasted five seasons. <laughs> I had much more fun doing different things than, than the same thing. I can understand I, that, but I would have loved to have seen you hang out more with Betty White because you two had a lot of fun also. <laughs> well, I met Betty on uh, Golden Girls, and then I was on Hot in Cleveland mm-hmm. and another series with uh, that she was on. She was in Boston, uh, Boston Legal, which you did also. Boston Legal. I did a lot of those David Kelly shows. Yeah. I did The Practice. I did Ali McGraw. I did uh, Boston Legal. All David Kelly. I had a lot of jobs that were running, running parts or reoccurring parts. Yeah. I did the Star Treks, four of them. I did The Practice, probably a dozen of them. So I had a lot of shows I was identified with, but uh, never a whole season of. It was okay with me. I like variety myself. I mean, I'm happy you got that big, wide resume, too, with a whole lot of variety, because there's some real wonderful things to pick through there. And, you know, I I feel like doing this interview, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about Popeye to some extent, because that's a big thing. Uh, And, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about Mr. Altman and some of the amazing work that he did. I mean, you guys did have a, a working relationship together, which was Really fun to hear the origins about that. We'll save that for the book. So if anybody wants to learn about that, check out Movie Dad. But uh, let's talk a little bit about Popeye. Because, I mean, they literally built an entire town for yeah, to make this film. Scratch. Yeah. And then it's you know, the you best get, set design I've ever seen. It's it's pretty gorgeous. You actually look at that thing. It's like, you know, they built this town from the ground up. And then in the book, you talk about how not only did they do that, but you guys basically kind of like built a community for your fellow crew members around it. So I'd love to kind of hear about what it was like to be on that set for that duration and just well, we living like you said, create... a community college kind of way. It became six months. You have to create a yeah. whole world. We always felt the actors did that we didn't live in Malta in some sort of a little cottage or a bungalow. We lived in Sweet Haven with 12 hour, 12 hour a day shooting. Yeah. You know, and even sometimes longer. Your whole life was really about that make believe town. And they ordered $100,000 worth of new lumber from Canada. And they built that, and they built the town with maybe 15 buildings. And Bob Altman said, I don't want any fake fronts like in a Western. I want to be able to go behind every building or down beside, below and above. Just don't build any fake uh, buildings, but have four sides. And several of them had chimneys, and you could put in dry ice or something. And from the long shot from the water, you could see them at night with some of the chimneys had smoke coming out. Yeah. But it was uh, after we built it, after uh, Wolf Kroger built the town with a lot of Maltese carpenters and helpers for about four months, uh, the new lumber made the Sweet Haven. Then they distressed it to look 100 years old, like a whaling village in New England or something. And it had more character than most sets I've ever seen. Very true. It was a big roughhouse cafe had lots of scenes. That was the biggest place. But the olives, the the oil family had uh, their home and a lot of other buildings in between. I spent more time in the oil family home. I was I don't know if I lived there. I was a visitor, but I had my meals there anyway. One of my happy thoughts is that I had two friends who were great actors named McIntyre Dixon and 
Richard Libertini, mm. who are actually a kind of a comedy team. And I got them both the job. And I wouldn't have been able to do that except that uh, I had Bob Robert Altman's ear and he trusted me. I need a guy who's tall and thin with a beard. I said, I have the perfect guy. So Richard Libertini became a pushcart vendor. And that McIntyre Dixon, McIntyre Dixon became uh, Olive Oil's father. Coal oil. <laughs> and her brother was castor oil. But we had a great time. We lived and breathed Sweet Haven. And uh, a guy who played um, who played Castor Oil with Wallace's brother, a funny kind of a short, chubby comedian, was Donovan Scott, and he's become one of my best friends still. Oh, that's great. From all that time, way back in 1980. Hmm. Whenever I need help with video, he transfers scenes from movies onto video, makes me a montage or a, a collection of my scenes or something. So I've worked with him on, I don't know, obviously 100, 150 times on various things. I needed uh, video-wise. I had a great friend of mine, too. This was also Robin Williams' first real big box office kind of thing. And unfortunately, at the time, it didn't do that well. Uh, these days, it's regarded as a cult classic. And you know, if you look at videos of this on YouTube, like people are just commenting about how dedicated and committed all the actors are. And I think a lot of it does have to do with the fact that they built these entire, you know, not just fake sets, but real, actual tactile sets that can actually house people. Well, there was a tremendous number of characters that yeah, many, some of which were in the old comic strip, but many of which Bob just invented. He got clowns from Italian circus to play parts. The stuntmen were from Italy. We had f some of Pellini, Fellini's crew. Uh -huh. Our cinematographer had worked for Fellini. It was a very a terrific big budget show. It's funny to think about that because it's like, you know, this kid's movie essentially, but you got folks who work for Fellini working on Popeye. I mean, that's just such a fun thing to kind of say out loud. Yeah, we, our, our AD was, uh, our um, director of photography was Italian, Giuseppe Rotuno, and his AD was Italian. So we hired another AD who spoke English because the cast is, uh, the, the cast was American but we all we began to teach a class in Italian it was such an amazing thing you may not have you may remember reading some of it in my book we began to create classes in the evening it became a little community college you could you could study uh, dance with our choreographer you could study music Robin and myself, Libertini and Dixon, created an improvisational class. Uh, Libertini and three other friends created the Dixieland Jazz Band. The guy there who came from NYU who taught circus skills was one of our people on the crew. And he, you could, uh, he had parallel bars. Many people learned to juggle. It was just amazing. There were people who teach magic tricks to each other. It was like a small university. Yeah, and we could all be in the evenings, all voluntary. But it was so boring in that little country <laughs> that there wasn't much else to do. And also, we watched dailies every night. Unlike most directors, Robert Altman would let you watch dailies. In fact, he wanted you there. So it was a big festival of rewarding the actors with what they did the day before. 
So it's a great deal of camaraderie uh, working with him. And that was my fifth movie. That was my fourth movie with him, but I did five altogether. So he really created my career in films. Do you think that Popeye was actually a bad movie or is it just misunderstood? Well, I think it fell apart at the end a little bit. They, at the end, there was a chase between two boats. Well, boats go five miles an hour. That's a very gentle chase. Not a high-speed chase. <laughs> and there's two boats, one chasing the other. Olive oil has been kidnapped by uh, Bluto. But uh, I was in the Navy, so I know that boats go very slow, you know, five, ten knots an hour. So it's a chase without any real speed. And if you were, all you have is a background, is a horizon. But if you're in a movie like Speed, every time you see a telephone pole go by, you know how fast you're going. But that's not able to be done when the horizon is miles and miles and miles away. So these little tiny people chasing, they tried to make the excitement with the music. That still didn't make it go any faster visually. (laughs) But uh, I thought it was... uh, most interesting because of the many multi, the multitudes of characters, you know, all kinds of strange people. Donald uh, Moffat was in a large tricycle. He was a town cop taxing everybody. Not a cop, a tax man. Oh, yes, sir, he's a tax man, yep. It was so full of great visual things. You know, you would walk past a pelican sitting on a post and he turned turned his head and looked at you. There was just so much invention. Here's a piece of trivia most people don't know. I'm playing Wimpy, who loves hamburgers, and never ate one hamburger in that movie. Now, I had tons of experience in commercials, and you never eat the food you're, you don't eat the, (laughs) you don't, you don't want to eat six piece, six takes of cereal because you'll get sick. Or if you do 10 takes of some food. So what they always do is when they say cut, you spit it out in the spit bucket. Otherwise, actors get sick or, the you know, it's too much. Yeah. Who knows? Sometimes you want to 12, 15 takes on something. If it's a rich food or something, you don't want to have that much food in your stomach. So I learned over the years not to eat the food in commercials. So I asked a prop man to make me a hamburger out of latex, which they did. Made of thin latex. It had lettuce, tomato, burger, cheese, sesame seeds on top. It looked exactly like it. I said, make it look like there's a bite that's been taken out of it. I always used to start the scene by holding a hamburger up. Yeah. And I would be chewing with my tongue against my cheek. Ah, that's the secret. And I never once ate a hamburger. First of all, (laughs) I tried some of the hamburgers. The meat came from Germany. It wasn't exactly like a Texas steer. <laughs> it wasn't very good. But good or not, I didn't want to uh, fill myself with food all day that I might be too much. So I was a magician once, and uh, I know about the misdirection. So I did it with misdirection. Nobody would ever believe I didn't eat a hamburger. Because if a guy's holding that many hamburgers walking around with them like they're part of his body. 
Of course he's eating hamburgers, but I was using technique to make it look that way. I mean, for a character like Wimpy, I think like 90% of his body is made of hamburger anyway. So that's pretty amazing. You fooled us all with that. (laughs) Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay what you want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Hi, I'm Braden. And I'm Connie. We're the hosts of the fun-filled food podcast, Epicurean Unicorn. On Epicurean Unicorn, we converse with food industry professionals. Uh, Connie, aren't we food industry professionals? That is what we tell people. Okay, all kidding aside, on Epicurean Unicorn, we bring our combined 40 years of food industry experience directly to you through conversations with other industry professionals. We focus on bringing you inspiring stories and current topics that are affecting the foods you enjoy every day. Plus, there's a lot of fun banter. Um, only on the episodes without you, Brayden. Hey! If you've ever wondered how to make the best banana sandwich, or if there is a library dedicated to sourdough... Uh, spoiler, there is. Or what the future of sustainability in the food industry looks like... Then this is the podcast for you. Do both your ear holes and your pie hole a favor and check out Epicurean Unicorn, a podcast for food lovers from food industry professionals. You can find and subscribe to Epicurean Unicorn on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our crazy work adventures on all social media by searching at Parados US. Nailed it. Uh, Brayden, that's a different show we aren't affiliated with. But Jacques Therese was on episode three. Check it out on all major podcast platforms. Well, anyway... Epicurean Unicorn, a magical adventure for foodies everywhere. Listen anywhere quality podcasts are found. Bye. That's not how we sign off. Bye. Be seeing you. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Well, you know, Paul, we're talking about Movie Dad. And uh, this past weekend, I got real lucky, I guess, because I feel like this interview is meant to be fate. Because I was watching on TV, and for the first time ever, I saw this movie that you're in. 
And uh, I'm going to give you a clue for it. Let's see if you can figure out which one it is. Uh, yeah. Paul, would you like some zucchini? It's not breaking away, is it? It's breaking away. I just watched that for the very first time. And uh, oh, I wow. got to tell you, it's, it's a really beautiful film. I really enjoyed it. Uh, your performance well, was especially was amazing in that. And uh, That's this, my signature film. Yeah, Best I mean, I ever did. it's it's some great work. Yeah, it's really, really good. And, uh, you know, in the book, you write about the scene towards the end of the film, which is where you have uh, a one-on-one with Dennis Christopher. And, uh, you know, I'd love, you know, if you could kind of tell us about why that scene was kind of very important to you and what that scene meant for you. We're walking on the campus at night with my son, Dennis Christopher. I talk about ha- having been a stonemason helping to build these buildings. I said, uh, it's funny, we worked in slave. We put our heart in these buildings. And when it was all done, they didn't seem to belong to us anymore. I, I felt funny going to those buildings. I guess it wasn't wanted because our work was done. Then we stop and I sit on a stone bench. And uh, he's talking about going to college. And I'm rubbing my hand on a stone bench. This is a stonemason who's no longer doing that work. And you get the feeling that uh, what I said in the book was it looked as if his hands remembered. And in breaking away, um, yeah, I said his hands remembered. But that was a callback for another scene where my father had a stroke and didn't recognize the family. But he walked around the house aimlessly. And uh, I used to notice him feeling the door frames, going up the door frame to the top where the corner joins together. And he would be investigating that with his fingers. And uh, I thought to myself, he doesn't know his, who his family is, but he knows that work, that carpentry work. He knows that was his. He's knows, he knows he's a carpenter. And then I say his hands remembered. Then I said it again when I was uh, stroking the stone bench and breaking away. Mm. A callback, both situations, his hands remembered. Really came from real life. It's a, it's a very powerful scene, very emotional. Uh, and I feel like so much of you is really in that film. I feel like, you know, of all the things I've seen during my research for this chat with you today, like breaking away just feels like the most... Uh, the most Paul Dooley Paul, maybe the most open version of him on screen. It is. Yeah. It's the best. I got more reviews than you would believe. Maybe 40 different critics raved about it. Raved. I'd believe it. So Paul, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion here at last. And uh, we have four episodes of you to talk about on Deep Space Nine. Uh, you played in Nobrin Tain. So uh, in your book, you do talk about it for about a half a page. But here on Trek Untold, I'm going to try and see how much I can pull out of you about this one, because uh, Anabrin Tain is one of those roles that we Trekkies really love. Uh, it's a very important role to us. And uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty amazing role again for you, I think. Um, so I'd like to hear, you know, we kind of take it from the top of the story, if you will. Uh, had you ever auditioned for Star Trek previously before you were in Auburn Tain? Uh, I never auditioned. Uh... At a certain point in my career out here, I didn't need to audition anymore. I was given a job. You know, it's uh, at a certain point, you don't have to audition anymore if you're well enough known. Almost every guest star in a sitcom, I never auditioned for. They just wanted someone like me, and they hired me. But uh, I didn't audition for Star Star Trek. But uh, I had been so... Uh, there's a lot of drama in Breaking Away, as well as comedy. 
Yeah. But I would say 90% of my work was playing comedy roles. Some of the fathers are sort of humorous and sort of not, but uh, I was most comfortable and had most experience doing comedy of sorts. You know, what with my second city experience and all. A sketch actor. I also did stand-up years ago. I was on The Tonight Show doing stand-up years ago. But uh, I was surprised to be called for, it wasn't, I wasn't the type, I didn't think. Uh, been called for uh, Star Trek, and I, I was glad to go and do it. It's four hours of makeup, and, which I didn't know in, in advance. <laughs> Another half hour to take the makeup off. But I really loved the idea of playing the drama, and I really got into his character. He was not a nice guy. He was a sort of a behind-the-scenes, uh, uh, what they call a, the guy that gets people elected, but nobody knows he's pulling the strings, you know. Mm. The spy master sort of character. Yeah. He, he was very, uh, almost Machiavellian. He sounded almost like a nice guy, gentle. But boy, he had a, he had a real devil's approach, you know. In one of the endings of one of my favorite scenes, he says, rather than uh, have you have a full life and enjoy it, I'd rather see you miserable. Mm. living outside of this planet or this world with no one miserable, unhappy for the rest of your life. That's the end of one scene. Yeah. And it's great fun to play that rich kind of mean guy drama thing, but almost smiling through it. Just pleasant. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that people really are drawn to with this character. And, you know, we're talking about the different films and shows that you've done, and it is a lot of comedy. And I feel like, you're really reveling in playing this kind of low down, dirty heel. Uh, Cause it yeah. really feels like you're just, you're a totally different person. And it's like not even a challenge for you to play this character. It just looks like you're just so enamored in it and so immersed in this world that it's just a natural fit. And maybe like something you've been kind of screaming to get out of yourself. Even it's, it's real wonderful work in this. Yeah, I did love playing it. And uh, they're all interesting, but there, there is one scene that ends in where you sh he shows really how terrible he is. It's, it's a real bastard, but I love playing it. Great fun. <laughs> so you worked alongside with Andrew Robinson in the show. He plays Garrick, and uh, you guys yeah. could have some great scenes together. But, you know, I hear on Star Trek shows, generally speaking, because they're done very quickly. Uh, you guys don't really get to rehearse, but you and Andrew Robinson just kind of clicked. So I'm wondering, like, did you guys do any work together before you filmed or was it just kind of a natural thing that happened on set? No, well, there might there might be a rehearsal, but that's more for the camera. Yeah, more for like blocking. And you know you have you know your words in advance. Of course, if you mix up, they just do another take. You know, if you miss a line. Sometimes, if an actor is having trouble with difficult speeches, difficult words, they'll actually shoot it one line at a time. Then they can always cut back and forth between the other character. Mm. So, if an actor is having a lot of trouble, they'll just do a sentence at a time, then go back and get another one. But that was great fun. I enjoyed that. And those actors are very good. I even told Garrick it was supposed to be my son. But I don't claim him. I don't uh, admit to having that son. Yeah. He's a real yeah. bastard, this guy. Yeah, I, I don't know if you're aware, but Andrew Robinson, he wrote an entire book uh, from the perspective of Garrick. And it's called A Stitch in Time. And it's essentially a 300-page character study that he did of this character. And it basically wow. takes you from like the starting point of his life all the way through, you know, his relationship with an Auburn Tain uh, to even beyond what happens after Star Trek D Space Nine ends. Uh, yeah. So I didn't you know, I didn't hear about that book. 
it's a really amazing book. Uh, and it's a real just masterpiece in terms of like understanding a character. And, you know, he really got Garrick. So I'm, I'm curious, like, what kind of prep did you do to become an Auburn Tane? Was there any sort of like character uh, in literature or in movies that you decided to pull from? Or did it all just kind of come internally from you and from the words on the page? I think I just took it from the words in the script. I just let that inform me who he was. Hmm. And I pretty soon knew he was uh, dishonest. They even had me dress with uh, leather patches on my elbows like I was a college professor. <laughs> and they they said to me, he belongs to something like, oh, the CIA of that at that time. But he's no longer with them, but he's still pulling strings because he's a kingmaker, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. So they gave me some preparation in, in that sense. Mm, okay. But I love playing it because it's very thick with character. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I want to. I want to show you something you're going to enjoy. Oh, okay. This is my one of my favorite pictures. If you can, I hope you can see it all. Ah, there you are. <laughs> There's an Albertine in action. And it's all in shades of blue, but it's a gorgeous picture. Yeah. See, I don't know if you remember this, Paul, uh, but there's one of the episodes that you did. It's uh, the two-parter, which was Improbable Cause. I, I believe we're talking about Improbable Cause, uh, or it might be the Dias cast. I forget which one. But uh, there's a scene. It's the first time you worked on screen with Andrew Robinson and Rene Abergenois. And yeah. I picked out the scene in particular because the way everybody is manipulating their bodies and doing all these little small things with their heads and their eyes, uh, it's really amazing because we're talking about a room with three dudes covered in makeup. And you can't really emote the same way you would emote if you were like, you know, Wimpy and Popeye or in Breaking Away without any of that makeup on. So to me, it's such a masterclass of like, yeah, it's like such a masterclass of using body language. And uh, I would love to hear if you remember anything about using body language to perform as an Auburn Tane. Uh, I didn't. uh, It wasn't if I had a way of moving or anything, it was unconscious. Hmm. It just did it by instinct. But, you know, Renee had such a complicated. almost a mask yeah he had to have his lunch through a straw because he couldn't chew it would ruin the makeup and he looked like he was a newborn he was very pale like he didn't have any normal flesh color it was almost pink it was a great makeup oh yeah i mean it's one of my favorite characters in all of star trek and uh he's a great actor anyway great actor and director yeah Oh, yeah. He did a movie with Bob Altman called, uh, it's about birds. He was playing a bird. Uh, it was, uh, there was a guy flying in a stadium down in Dallas. I can't remember the name of that. Oh, Brewster McLeod? Brewster McLeod. My wife is nearby. That went, hello, Winnie. That's right. <laughs> anyway, uh, he played a teacher of ornithology. Just a short scene. And he was made up and acted like a bird. He's a wonderful, wonderful actor. Bob did a movie in Ireland. I forget the name of that one, too. And Renee was in that. Yeah, I'm curious, uh, when you got the role of an Aubertine, did you know it would be recurring? Or was there a discussion of it being recurring? Or when you got that first part, was it just like you think you were going to do one part and that's it? Uh, I don't think I knew they were going to make it, bring him back. Okay. I, to me, it was just a job. Hmm, okay. But by the end of the first last, by the last day that we think we're going to bring him back and and use him again. So just be aware. 
Now, you hadn't really done any sci-fi either up until basically Star Trek, I feel like. So how different is it for you to be in that kind of a set? I mean, you know, I know a TV show or a film set, a set's a set. But we're talking about Star Trek with these enormous, crazy alien architecture things all around you. Uh, what was it like for you to kind of get into that feeling? Did that help you? Did it make you nervous or anxious? I think it always helps you if the set is very specific. If it's just a typical room with a couple of paintings on the walls and a couch and two chairs, it's not something you think about. It's just mm-hmm. to go to that spot, hit your mark, say your words. It doesn't influence me very much, that kind of thing. But being in Sweet Haven did. It influenced me as a as a performer. I just I felt like I felt unlike myself when I was there. And the odd thing is, having been typed as his father for so many films, although I love doing character stuff, the only real stretch I ever did was playing Wimpy. He's mm. nothing like the father's. You know, in fact, he's a bit of a con man. Yeah. He sells the baby for a bag of hamburgers. <laughs> yeah, most, a lot of my fan mail is Popeye and 16 candles and cars one, two, and three and things like that. Sometimes it's, uh, Strange Brew, which is a little bit of a cult film. Rick Moranis, uh, that's a good one too. So yeah, I wanted to ask you about the very final scene that you did as an Auburn Tain, uh, and that's in the episode Purgatory Shadow. Uh, and that's essentially the death scene for an Auburn Tain. And, uh, you know, he's a character, as we learned, who's basically, you know, he wants to see his enemies die. Even in his dying moments, he wants to make sure his enemies are all removed and taken care of. And, you know, with yeah. his very last breaths, he finally becomes a father to his estranged son. And honestly, like, it's a really powerful moment. And I just, like I said, I rewatched stuff for this interview. I just rewatched that episode again. And like, I was actually moved to tears. And I don't know what was different for me about it, but like that scene was just like heartbreaking to watch. Uh, and just hearing him like tell Garrick how proud he was of him to be his son. Uh, it's such an emotional thing. I'm curious if you have any memories from your final day as an Aubrey Do you remember doing that scene with Andrew? I do not. Okay. You know, sometimes if you have a hundred credits, yeah, <laughs> it's a little difficult to pick out certain ones. They are they are around. I won't forget playing Wimpy. But uh, sometimes I've done what might turn out to be a very good performance and something, but it was just a job. Well, for us Trekkies, you know, like you said earlier in the interview, and Auburn Tain is such a big part of things. And uh, really, it's like what you did with that character was wonderful. Uh, and watching it again just years later still holds up. Great performance. And it really is such a different thing from what we're used to seeing you do. And I feel like maybe that's why it stands out even more, because we know you as the dad. But here you are as, you know, the Machiavellian yeah. bad guy. Yeah, it's a bit of a stretch in a way. <laughs> it's not typical of what I do. Uh, did you, uh, do, I don't know if you remember, did you actually watch any of your episodes at Star Trek? Are you an actor who will typically watch things that he's in, or do you tend to stay away from that? No, I'm not against watching stuff. I'm often curious. And somehow I managed to get, I think it's four episodes. Yep. I managed to get uh, copies of them. Hmm, okay. And now and then I'll, now and then I'll, my daughter is 33 and, and she's done so many things. She's never seen them all. So I say, want to see something interesting? So I'll just pull off a an, an Aubrantain and show it to her. Wow, I didn't know you did that. <laughs> yeah, it's some great stuff. And you really pulled the best out of these actors, too. I mean, working with Alexander Sadig as Dr. Bashir, working with Andrew Robinson, working with Renee. I mean, when you come on stage, when you come on set, I should say, uh, it feels like you know, you're really making them get to your level, which is something I also really enjoyed watching in, in, in these episodes again. Well, uh, actors have a way of wanting to hook up. They want a way 
of course, you're just hitting your marks and saying your words, but you want to make it look like you and you're drawn to the characters or you're against those characters. You have, there's a certain dynamic that, uh, that does evolve when you're working with other actors. You're either, uh, you're either a friend or an enemy, uh, or you might have a motive about something. So that draws actors together when they have uh, underlying feelings about each other. You know, as we mentioned at the start of this interview here, you're 94 right now, and you still yeah. have things on IMDb that are listed as in production, which is astounding to me that you're you're still working right now, which is amazing. Uh, so, yeah. you know, besides being a vegetarian until you were 17, uh, what would you say has attributed to your professional longevity and your personal longevity? Because I, I got to tell you, Paul, I mean, you don't look 94. And I feel like your voice hasn't even changed over the decades. I mean, you you feel like you look and feel like I've seen you in the movies. So it's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, oddly enough, was breastfed till I was five. I did read that. That was a weird factoid. <laughs> and the point is, uh, it wasn't unusual. I grew up in the Depression. Yeah. People were out of work. Yeah. Went, milk cost money. Uh, and as long as the mother's milk continued, many people, farm people, poor people, they just kept breastfeeding. Well, the colostrum, the immunity thing you get from breast milk, I had five years of it in that immunity system of mine. So between vegetarianism and breastfeeding, I think that's part of why I am in good health. My parents didn't live to be 94. They were in their 70s. I mean, like the one thing I noticed when I was, again, listening to that Alan Alda podcast and just talking to you today, too, it's just like how sharp and quick you still are. I mean, you don't lose that. So, uh, No, my mind is very good. Yeah. Alan's an old friend of mine. Yeah, I love hearing you your stories about remember. working the spaghetti bars together. <laughs> he helped me write a monologue for the Tonight Show. They wanted I was on there once and they said, I want you to come back in two weeks. I didn't have a monologue. So he and I wrote one and it worked out fine and became a good friend of mine. And I loved his podcast I was on. He's a very wonderful guy. Just what you think he'd be from hearing him talk is one of the great humanitarian loves people i like him like him very much i mean honestly paul i wish that alan alda did some star trek so i would have an excuse to try and get him on this show too <laughs> all right so paul as we come to a conclusion of this interview i got a few last questions for you these are kind of the lightning round questions this is where that whole alan alda inspiration comes from here start with this one here best day that you ever had on a set and the worst day that you ever had on a set best day was on a film called Breaking Away, doing a scene, walking on campus at night and sitting on a stone bench. Mm. Worst day, I worked with a British director, uh, Michael Winner, and he was no winner. This was in Death Wish, the first one. Oh, yeah. There were three actresses playing hookers. I was a cop dressed in a warm cop's, you know, peacoat. And uh, it was uh, in the middle of Manhattan, just not too far from the Hudson River, the real strong, cold wind coming off. Everyone is freezing. Uh, we're huddled together. Well, the director's coming over to talk to you. Okay. So the girls are in short skirts. They're shivering. And I'm cold even in my, in my uh, uh, cop's uniform. And the crew are wearing not only uh, hoodies, or toboggan caps, 
or face masks for the cold. They had warm kind of face masks on. And the director comes over, we're huddled together, three hookers and myself. He said, here's the scene. Uh, you see these hookers over here on the corner. You run over, you chase them, they go down the subway stairs. The next scene will be over there where you see a guy on the ground who's been shot. This is a Star Trek scene. And now, as we're doing this, and he's telling us, he says to me, excuse me, do you have your hands in your pocket while the director is talking? I said, yeah, it's cold. He says, it doesn't matter whether it's cold or not. When you listen to a director, you don't put your hands in your pocket. And I would like to say, how would you like to stick that up your behind? You know, if I were 20 years older and not beginning, I would just really, I would have told him, for, you know, you're crazy. I would say, look at the crew. They're warm. What are you talking about? But intimidated by him, I just took it. And I thought, what kind of a jerk is this guy? Years later, I heard from people he's a prick and he's not easy to work with. And he's a bully and he always talks to the underlings like props and uh, makeup and wardrobe and talks down his nose at them. No one likes him. Well, that's the worst day I ever had on the set. That's a pretty horrible day. Yeah. Uh, have you ever had or played a role that has changed your perspective on how you thought about something? I was hired once to play a pedophile. Mm. I shot it in Vancouver. It's a story about a, a girl uh, who's 21. And when she was 14, she was molested by her father. Now her younger younger sister is around 14, and she's worrying that the father is going to molest her, although she's never mentioned it before. She let it slide. So I said to the director, "Uh, why did you think of me for this part? He said, because I thought the audience would trust you. I thought there would be a question mark over the the scenes. It was in court, a lot of it in court. And... uh, I realized that changed my way of thinking. I'm the same actor that many people loved for a long time. And now I'm able to play something where they don't like me anymore. They don't have that relationship with them anymore. They might have seen me do 20 or 30 things. So I was miscast, but as an actor, I did what I could with it. But it really struck me that uh, with all the goodwill I had, collected with all my different performances, mostly positive, that I had to play this so it would be believed as a bad guy. So that's why he hired me, because it wouldn't be easy if if I normally look like a scowling kind of guy, if I look like a molester, then it would be too easy. Said I wanted them to be on your side in the trial until it came out that you had molested your young children. That had a tremendous effect on me for some reason. I learned from it. What's something that you know today that you wish you knew back when you were first starting out? I wish I wish I had the balls to tell that director off. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most valuable piece of information or advice someone ever gave you about life or about acting that you still think about and use today? 
Well, if it was about life and belief in yourself and looking into yourself to find out who you really are. So, Paul, you know, as we mentioned, you have done a lot of things throughout your life, a lot of roles. We obviously cannot talk about all of them roles. That would be a marathon of a, of a year-long episode with you. But, uh, you know, through all your work, all the things you've learned through your life, all the things you've accomplished, what do you want the legacy of Paul Dooley to be? Well, I like to be remembered for being great at comedy, but uh, in a funny way, I know I reach more people by being a father in these movies, uh, especially uh, the iconic uh, Molly Ringwald part. Uh, And I like that idea of uh, people remembering me fondly as somebody they could trust or was uh, understanding and empathetic and and very uh, humble, really. But uh, the second version of it is that I was good at comedy. After all, I worked with uh, Christopher Guest and Larry David, improvising all my words. And we didn't even talk about that stuff because you did a lot of work with uh, Christopher Guest and his films, which I'm also a big fan of. I love seeing you in A Mighty Wind and uh, hearing you sing and do that kind of stuff also. Yeah, he's a great guy. Brilliant. I knew Chris when he was 17. His mother was my agent. She was an agent. Oh, wow. Yeah. So last thing for today, Paul, what is the yeah. best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? <laughs> I still get mail about it. You know, uh, I did four of them, but I did a dozen on the practice, but I don't get mail on that because <laughs> Trekkies are very loyal, very inquisitive, and they love to hear the history of things mm-hmm. and uh, talk to people who are involved. You don't find, uh, I've done all those David Kelly shows, but I don't get tons of people tracking me down to get a photograph of me on a show. <laughs> but Star Trek is much more uh, intriguing to people, has fans. I mean, more fans than almost any other kind of show. Mm-hmm. You know, they're more loyal, they're more obsessed almost. I mean, you take something like Friends, they have loyal fans, but they're not as loyal as Trekkies. There's something about it that people are just fascinated by every detail of it. Well, I mean, how often is it that you get to talk to the head of the Obsidian Order? So, you know, if you can understand why, us, us Trekkies are crazy for a reason. Yeah. Nope. It's made its mark, I'll tell you that. Yeah. There'll probably be more of them to come. I'm sure there will be. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad they are because it's going to keep me in business, too. Anyway, I was very glad to be called to do it. And I was glad that we did more than one. And it was the perfect number. Yes, and I'm I'm happy you got to have a full-on character arc, too. We got to see the entire story of Anabrin Tain. And uh, yep. likewise, I'm very happy to be able to spend this time with you today. Uh, you know, I've been trying to keep myself together this whole time, because these are this is one of those interviews where I'm just inside screaming, because, uh, you know, I've seen you <laughs> so many things, and I very much admire all of your work, and, and who, you as a person also. So, uh, you know, not just as a performer, but all the things you've done beyond stage and screen, too. So uh, it's been really wonderful to chat with you today, Paul. Thank you for giving so much yourself in this interview and giving so much yourself throughout all of your work that you've done. And uh, I look forward to seeing what you're going to be doing next at 95 and 96 and on and on. Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing me into your world and uh, call me anytime you want. Now, well, as they say, Paul, live long and prosper. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. 
Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold, which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.